0: I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. What we're going to talk about today is how God used the feasts of Israel to be a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. What I mean is he used the actual like holidays. He gave them specific holidays as I want you to observe these holidays, and they're very detailed in how they're to be observed. And that that, like so many other things in the Old Testament, it points us to Jesus Christ. So I'm very much looking forward to this. If you haven't done this before, it should be really rewarding for you as you do it. If you've done it before, you may find that I'm not covering certain things you want me to cover, and there might be a reason for that. I'll explain as we go um, to be as, as, as uh, unclear as possible. But I will say there's intricate detail, and um, when we look at the feast and we see pictures of Jesus, I think it's fair for us to call this prophecy. It's like a a type of prophecy. It's a kind of prophecy because it's a foretelling. It's all, it's types and shadows written ahead of time. So it's telling you who, him who is to come. And it's a neat prophecy. Here's a fancy term for you. It's calendrical prophecy because it's about the calendar. It's the calendar of Israel and it's the prophecy related to that. Because God didn't just give Israel a law. He gave them a calendar. Isn't that interesting? So Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it actually talks about this. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This is the month Nisan. Nisan is the first month, not just a car manufacturer, right? But if you, if you use one S instead of two, it's the first month of the year here, the, the religious year for the Israelites. And in this first month, he tells them, you're going to observe certain feasts, and we get the feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, and first, and first fruits, and then we have Pentecost coming 50 days after those. That's the first set of feasts in the, in the calendar of Israel. There's seven total. That's the first four. The next ones after that are the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, or the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, where they actually dwell in tents. So today we're going to cover that first set of feasts. One of them happened like in the spring, one set of feasts happened in the spring and moving towards summer, because Pentecost was 50 days later. And then the other set happened towards the fall. It was like very separated times of the year when these different feasts happened. Um, Seven holidays of Israel. So they're not just days. It's not just days to like take off work, although they did often rest on those days. But there's rituals and ways of carrying out these days that were given by God. And um, in Israel, if you were to visit Israel, it would be like, you know, especially back in the day, you would see the whole nation looking different. During these times, kind of like in America, when Christmas season comes around, and everything changes, and decorations go up, and there's a whole vibe, a whole feel to the Christmas season. So there's certainly a a type of feel to these different feasts, especially when you get to things like the Feast of Tabernacles, right, where they're actually setting up tents and dwelling in them. I almost threw my Bible off the pulpit. That's always a bad idea. (laughs) What does that foreshadow? I don't even want to know. Um, Okay, so three... Or four of these feasts are in the spring. I say three or four because... Um, okay, so you have Passover. We'll go in, over them in detail. But you have Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost. Okay, well, they, they sometimes think of Passover and Unleavened Bread as one feast. So sometimes they'll count that as as just three instead of four. It just depends. Sometimes you get three, sometimes you get four. Um, those are going to happen in, in the month of Nisan, as far as Passover, Unleavened Bread, and the First Fruits. They all happen within a week of each other. Then 50 days later, you have the Feast of Pentecost. And that, for instance, this year, it's going to be on June 9th, the Feast of Pentecost. Um, Then there's three in the fall. Like I said, this is in the seventh month, Tishri on the Jewish calendar. Uh, But for us, it starts in September 30th this year. That's the Feast of Trumpets. Then October 9th and 10th, we have the Day of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur, right? You guys have heard of that. And then we have on October 14th through 20th, Sukkot, or Sukkot, or however you want to pronounce it, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles. The feasts foreshadow in intricate detail things related to Jesus, that's what we're going to focus on, but I'll warn you, I'm not going to focus on a whole bunch of rabbinical additions to the feasts, we're going to talk about what scripture says. Jesus warned against the additions that the, the Pharisees added, he called it the leaven of the Pharisees he warned them of the leaven of the Pharisees because they teach as the commandments of God, the doctrines of man. And that's a problem. And so I'm going to stay somewhat away from those things. I might mention it here and there casually, like, oh, that's interesting. But what often happens is when people discuss the biblical feasts, if you you could look for this teaching online and stuff, they make no difference between tradition and scripture and they just merge it all together. And I'm very interested in what the Bible says. I think the Bible is the sole authority for us uh, as far as final authority. And we should focus on that. Plus, we're looking at what scripture says foreshadowings about Jesus, not what later traditions can we use. So we'll go over these feasts in the order that they happened, starting with the first ones. Um, We read about these in Leviticus 23. That's, we've kind of been doing a survey of Leviticus, sort of a, somewhat of a, what do you call that, like a... Bouncing around a little bit in Leviticus, we did the first seven chapters, then we did chapter eight, then we jumped forward. So we're, here we are, Leviticus 23, that's the section. And <clears throat> I'll mention one more thing before we get into Passover, and that is that um, three of these feasts, they had to actually go to Jerusalem for the feasts. So this is in Deuteronomy chapter 16, he says in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 16, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, which ended up being... Jerusalem right that's where the, t- the tabernacle ended up staying permanently and the temple was built then the times when they had to come was that the feast of unleavened bread the feast of weeks or Pentecost and the feast of booths or tabernacles so here we have again Passover and unleavened bread kind of became merged because they happen at around the same time kind of they actually do feast of unleavened bread overlaps Passover and so you, they're to come at Passover they all gather just like Paul went to Jerusalem for Passover Jesus went to Jerusalem for Passover Well, they also went for uh, the Feast of Weeks and then for the Feast of Tabernacles, which we don't get as much details about in the New Testament, interestingly enough. We'll get back. We'll get to that next week. So these are the three times they come. Here we are, Leviticus 23. That's where you're going to want to kind of camp out for a little bit, but I will quickly jump from there to other places and not give you time to turn because that is my style. Sorry. Um. You just learn to be really fast. Leviticus 23 verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. So it's like a gathering. There's like something to do on these days. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord and all your dwelling places. And immediately... You're like, if you read on in Leviticus, you're going to see in 23, there's, it's all feast, 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 Passover, Unleavened Bread, Pentecost. Like, but here it says the Sabbath. The Sabbath is really like, in a sense, the first one. It's a weekly, not exactly a feast, but sort of a feast. It certainly fits because it's a time when you're to rest, you're not to work, and you're to have a holy convocation. I think that we should go ahead and start with the Sabbath because that's what Leviticus 23 starts with. As it surveys through all these feasts, It starts with the Sabbath. This was kind of a big deal that they would not work on the Sabbath and they would enjoy just the goodness of God. That's the idea. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus said it was that they would enjoy the goodness of God. It was not meant to be a burden, but it was a very big deal that they actually obeyed it. In fact, in Numbers 15, after the Sabbath rest was commanded, we read about a young man who's out there gathering sticks on the Sabbath. He's now, now he's, he's not just working on the day he's not supposed to work. He's in direct violation of the clear command of God. He's rebelling against God. And Moses asks the Lord, what should we do? And, they, and he says, kill the man, stone him. And so they do. The first guy that breaks the Sabbath rest, he works on the Sabbath and he's stoned for it. Now, this is one of those passages in the scripture, especially to Gentiles. We look at it and we often go, that seems awfully extreme. Whoa. Now, part of me says, hey, You, you, like, spurn the direct commands of God. That's kind of a big deal, okay? You didn't just work on a day you weren't supposed to work. You ignored what God told you to do. You rebelled against him and did whatever you wanted to do. But I think oftentimes these passages that make us go, huh, are pointing to Christ. And it's the, what was that about that makes us see Jesus in those passages? It's pretty cool. So let me come back to that a little bit. Um, Just keep in mind, Numbers 15, that passage where the young man was uh, stoned for, for working on the Sabbath. Um, as you, as you look from Leviticus 23 and you go to Psalm 95, we find that there's a prophetic element to the Sabbath. Psalm 95 speaks about some future Sabbath rest for the people of God. It says in Psalm 95:11, "Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." And then. Seeing, and this is interesting because this is, this is a parallel to Melchizedek for those who are following the whole series, right? Melchizedek is this character who occurs in Genesis. We read about him. He's this priest. He's a king. He offers bread and wine. He gets tithed to by Abraham, all this neat stuff. And then Psalms, Psalm, I think it's, is it 103? Speaks of Melchizedek and it talks about him prophetically about how the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we have a historical event and then a, a, a prophetic announcement in the Psalms. Same thing here. God says, hey, the Sabbath is a day of rest. You need to rest on that day. Psalm 95 speaks of this day of rest that's, that's like promised, that's looming, and that they won't participate in in Psalm 95 because they didn't believe the Lord. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 capitalizes on Psalm 95. It says, hey, we have this Sabbath thing in the Old Testament. We got the Psalm 95 prophecy about the Sabbath. Well, we're telling you that's prophesied and the fulfillment of it is in Jesus. So it tells us that Jesus is at the heart of what it means to have a Sabbath. So Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1, after reading Psalm 95 to us and doing like a, a, a divinely inspired explanation of Psalm 95, it says, therefore, in Hebrews 4.1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, the question you might have then is, wait, is there's multiple rests in the Old Testament, right? There's like this, the weekly Sabbath. Then there was like the seven-year Sabbath. Then there was like the year of Jubilee, which is every 50 years, seven weeks of years, all combined together. Then the year after that is like the year of Jubilee. Okay, so there's these different rests, but what's Psalm 95 talking about? What's Hebrews 4 talking about? Well, in Hebrews 4, verse 4 and 5, it tells us it's talking about the weekly Sabbath. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works that's Genesis 2-2 so we're getting the Sabbath in Genesis 2-2 and again in this passage Psalm 95 he said they shall not enter my rest so Psalm 95 is talking about the seventh day rest which is connected to how God worked six days and then rested and he's going to invite us to enter into that rest I hope I'm making it clear and not muddy there's a rest for the people of God And that rest comes through Christ. These are themes working through scripture. This is Jesus in the Old Testament, right? We catch this sort of thematic element of the Sabbath and we follow it through the text of scripture and we see it fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews chapter four, verses nine through 10, it adds to this, it says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Remember the, the nature of the Sabbath is you don't work. You don't work you just enjoy god enjoy what god has given you enjoy the things god has done well romans four and 5, four verse five says and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness i think to put it this way to summarize the sabbath is this the sabbath is a day where you're not allowed to work in fact if you do death penalty because it pictures how we rest in christ how he does the work for us and we just trust him. We just believe in Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith apart from works. Now, why is that guy gathering sticks on the Sabbath such a big deal, such an offense to God? Because he's breaking a picture of us coming to Christ and having faith, right, alone, being saved by faith alone apart from works. So that guy's breaking the picture, which is an offense to Christ, not just an offense to a particular day. So I think that this is why in Numbers 15, that guy gets the death penalty. You work on the day of rest, you get death. You reject the finished work of Jesus and you offer your own righteousness. Jesus, I'll, I'll just be a good person and I'll, I'll be good enough. Eternal death. Eternal consequences for that. So this is consistent with the message of the book of Hebrews overall. Um, in Hebrews, it talks about this escalation. It's like, hey, under the Mosaic law... Physical death penalty for for the things you do wrong under the gospel, it's an eternal death. So it's this escalation, Remember, we keep talking about escalation with the Jesus in the Old Testament series. Um, So there's, that's the Sabbath. The basic idea behind the Sabbath is, I rest in Jesus, he saves me, and I rest. Don't you dare try to add your works to what Jesus did. The moment you find yourself thinking, well, I'll just have to be a good enough person, or I have to just, I have to, if I just give more money, if I just attend more church services, if I can just read the Bible more, then I'll be worthy. It's like, no, you still won't be worthy. You need to rest in his work, his finished work. Jesus paid it all. That's it. in His story. Um, it's an offense to him to add our works to that. Then in Leviticus 23, verse 4, we get to the next thing, not the Sabbath, but the Passover. Leviticus 23.4, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the appointed, at the time appointed for them in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. That first month, Nisan, the 14th day at twilight, that's Passover. Now I've covered this in some detail, so I don't want to spend all night, which we could right on just Passover, but I want to overview some of that content because I don't know if someone's even remembering the stuff that I taught. I mean, I know you guys remember everything I teach. You Like fully recall, I don't even remember everything I teach. So actually, let's just go over it again, shall we? Um, but in the, in, in the study I taught on the Hall of Types, um, Hall of Types in Hebrews, how is a Hall of Typology? The Hall of Faith is a Hall of Typology. Anyway, I, I talked about Passover there. But the big picture is this. Passover was a yearly uh, commemoration of what God did during the 10th plague upon the people of Egypt how he saved his people through the offering of a spotless lamb. And there's connections to Jesus there. I mean, there's obviously John who says of Jesus when he arrives, like, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, But there's many ways in which this connects to Jesus. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 makes it explicit. The Bible clearly indicates that this is the case. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. So clearly, Jesus is the passover lamb this the typology is of christ that's the point. So for Passover, it had to be a lamb. It could have been a sheep or a goat, but it, but it had to be this 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 animal it had to be a male. It had to also be without spot and blemish, and in that we see a perfect representative, kind of like adam he's the new Adam he Adam represented all of us in the fall. Jesus represents all of us on the cross, and so we have this male representative of all of mankind. Um, But perfect and without spot without any sin it had to be in substitution of their firstborn This is something people sometimes miss with passover God was going to strike the firstborn of the land But this lamb he'll be instead of your firstborn. So we see that this lamb is connected to the idea of the firstborn son Jesus is that firstborn The only begotten son of god, right? So he is that ultimate he is not Like the ram caught in the thicket where you know abraham was going to sacrifice his son. Jesus isn't the ram He's the son the ram was the symbol of the sun. That's the picture here. We're trying to get the connection between the two. Um, he also, they could not break the bones of this Passover lamb. They were not allowed to break any of its bones. And we see that Jesus' legs were not broken. And then Matthew actually connects this. I think it's Matthew connects this to uh, to the Passover lamb, that none of his legs would be broken. Um he was slain. The animal was slain. It was actually killed. Not just hurt, not just harmed, but actually had to die. It had to be the death of the animal. It had to be at a special location. Um, at the first Passover, it, was, um, it wasn't so much the case. They, 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 would, they, they didn't have a tabernacle, right? At the first Passover, during the ten plagues, there was no tabernacle. But later on, this had to happen at the tabernacle. So the first Passover, it happened in the home, and then they would put the blood on the doorpost. But after that, it happened at the tabernacle, actually the actual temple. And so we we get the idea of this has to happen at God's house or at God's place. Um, Why? I think because the tabernacle symbolizes access to God. So here we have the blood creating this peace between man and God in the Passover lamb. Uh, Deuteronomy 16.2 says, And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. So in Deuteronomy, they're saying, hey, once you get into the land, there's going to be a location where God makes like sort of the religious center of Israel. And it ends up being Jerusalem. It was at Shiloh for a time, right? Ends up being at Jerusalem. And that's where you're to do this. Uh, Deuteronomy 16 verses 5 and 6 It says, you may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening, at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. So in a sense, when you study the Passover, it's nice to notice there's differences between the initial Passover experience and the commemoration of the experience, right? Like the blood on the doorpost wasn't always commemorated. That was just the initial time. After that, it was done actually at the tabernacle and the blood was actually put like on the horn to the altar and things like that. So just differences that are there. Um, There's more. Uh, The Passover lamb had to be eaten, not only sacrificed but consumed. Each person in the house had to actually partake of this animal. This was like a way of taking in... The substitution of this animal, Jesus, he, t- he says, like, my flesh is, eat food, and drink, uh, is food indeed, my, my blood is drink indeed. Now, he later on goes on to explain, my words are spirit, so he's speaking spiritually here. But I think he's using the terminologies because of the connection to, for instance, the Passover. They partake of it, we partake of Christ. You can't just know that Jesus died, you, ha- you must take in what he's done for you so that you can be saved and you can be forgiven. With Jesus, there's escalation though, right? Um, with the Passover lamb, they're just leaving Egypt. And they're remembering leaving Egypt. But with Jesus, we're being saved from sin and death. There's a destroyer going through the land that's just a sample of God's judgment upon mankind. With Jesus, we're actually protected from ultimate judgment. Keep in mind that the Old Testament law is, its copies and shadows. And it's fixing problems that are lesser than the problems Jesus is fixing that are bigger. That's kind of the escalation sense that's there. Uh, How the Passover lamb was cooked was really specific. It couldn't be boiled and it couldn't be raw. It had to be roasted in the fire and had to be roasted whole. And this may speak of a sense of judgment, like judgment falling upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, Also, it had to be served with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, later traditions added tons of stuff to the Passover sacrifice and the Passover service. So that now we could do like a Passover meal where you have all kinds of stuff you add on to it. That was, that's kind of normal now in Jewish homes. That's fine, but I'm looking for typology in the scripture, not typology in Jewish tradition. So I'm not going to focus on that. You could do a whole study on that, but I think people sometimes get enamored by the traditions and then they expose themselves to some of the leaven of the Pharisees, to be honest. Some of the false teachings because you're just so like enamored by these traditions. I'm like, let's stick to the text. Jesus was not enamored by the traditions of the people of his time. I don't think we should be either. They're interesting. I can be, I can learn things from them, but they're not like these inspired, in, you know, insights necessarily. Um, the uh, The bitter herbs was to represent the bitterness of their slavery. And um, so it was, it was, it was not meant to just be this pleasant meal. It was meant to have like elements of it that were like, oh, this is rough. This is hard. This is tough to remind them of their slavery. And so we look to the cross and we remember our sin. And we remember what Christ went through to deliver us from the slavery to sin. That we have the, the leaven, the unleavened bread is to say that Jesus was sinless. And we're partaking of that as well. Um, the original Passover, they ate of it with their belts fastened and their sandals on their feet and their staff in their hand. It seems like they didn't do that later on. They did that at the initial Passover, but not at the le- commemorations later. Um, but in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's like a sense in which we have this anticipation about getting out of this world. Until, I should say, the Lord coming and ruling in this world. I should put it that way. The Lord coming and ruling in this world. Just like they had this anticipation of what was about to happen after this meal. We're out of here, right? They were leaving Egypt. Um, None of the Passover could remain till morning. Uh, Just like Jesus did not remain on the cross. John nineteen thirty one puts it this way. It says, since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so Jesus was not re- to remain on the cross. The typical thing for Romans was to leave bodies on the cross for days and days and days. It was like a way of saying, don't mess with Rome. That's why this was a public thing. But they did make some... Uh, allowances for Jews in particular. We actually have evidence from this, from Josephus. They actually allowed Jews special allowances because they, see, they want to, they want to leave them on the cross to control the population, but if you leave these bodies on the cross, the Jews are actually going to rise up and revolt. It has the opposite effect with Jews than it does with other people because they view the body hanging there as a curse upon the land. So none of it shall remain till morning. It has to be taken down. It's interesting. Jesus, in case you didn't know this, he died, during the Feast of Passover. That's not a coincidence. He died at the Feast of Passover. And I would, I would put it this way. I'd be so bold as to say, it's not like God timed Jesus dying to match the Feast of Passover. I think God timed Passover to match the time of Jesus dying. He's the chief thing here. This is the shadow. And I think we should view it that way. Now, the next day, when you get into the next event is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the thing is, you've kind of already started it because at the Passover, you're already eating the unleavened bread. You've already been cleaning your home out of unleavened bread. But technically, the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts the next day. Like I said, later traditions combine these two feasts. In Leviticus 23, verse 6, we read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says, On the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, or bread without yeast, Bread that's like flat, that doesn't have any rising in it. On the first day, you shall have a a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. So there was these gatherings at the bookends of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a week of eating unleavened bread. Now, if leaven's representing sin, then what is a week of eating unleavened bread representing? Like being pure. It's representing this sort of purity that you're experiencing. No leaven. Leaven represents bad things in Scripture, right? It represents sin. It represents pride. It represents false doctrine. You talked about the leaven of the Pharisees I mentioned earlier. They had to cleanse their house of leaven. Not just not eat bread, but your home couldn't even have leaven in it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Couldn't even be in the home at all. Something really interesting that happened. Around the same time as the Jews were going to be cleaning their homes of unleavened bread, Jesus shows up to the temple and he cleanses it, the cleansing of the temple, John chapter 2, and he kicks out the money changers and he says, you've made my father's house, he goes to his house, my father's house, and he cleans it out. At the same time as they're getting rid of the leaven, he's actually getting rid of what the leaven represents, the real issues. I think that's very interesting and you might keep that in mind the next time you read about the cleansing of the temple, this is happening at the time of unleavened bread. So, we're familiar with matzah, the matzah bread that we use. Um, And you might be eating it thinking, you know, this is not the best bread in the world. It's more like crackers than bread. But that bread that we use is actually the traditional Jewish bread. This is what they're using. These crackers are what they're using during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you actually look at the box of matzah, it's, we're buying it, kosher Jewish matzah. That's what we're using. The matzah itself, it's got a bunch of holes all through it. It's pierced. That's actually to help make sure it doesn't rise. So they run through a bunch of holes in it. It's pierced. It's also cooked and it's got this kind of like char marks on it. Now they're not doing this to make it look like Jesus here. But it just so happens that that's what happens. It's unleavened. It's charred like judgment. It's pierced. And you break it. It comes in these big chunks and you break it. Now I don't know if Jesus's bread was just like that or not. It might have been, but it was definitely going to be something like similar in, fa- in some fashion. In Luke 22, 19, Jesus, it says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, later on, when Jesus is meeting with the two men walking on the road to Emmaus, we've talked about earlier in this series, right, where they, they, they said he was known to them in the, the breaking of the bread. That was still during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so that would have also been unleavened bread during that feast as well. Now, after this feast, you better be believing they're eating all kinds of leavened bread. You ever try to not eat bread for a while? That was dumb. Why'd you do that? (laughs) I say just eat less of what you do like rather than eating a bunch of stuff you don't like. I don't know. Maybe. Is that bad bad diet advice? I'm probably giving bad diet advice. Just ignore that. The New Testament gives us more light on the unleavened bread feast. And it's, again, it's 1 Corinthians 5, 7. The same passage that says Jesus is our Passover, it connects Jesus to the unleavened bread and uh, the feast of unleavened bread. So it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven. That's talking about how they would go through their home and get rid of the leaven. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So the unleavened bread is me. He's the Passover lamb. He breaks and he gives me the bread and then I become unleavened. I'm unleavened bread. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Keep the feast. This is Leviticus 23 language. We're going to keep the feast. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is saying that we're keeping the feast not through the shadows, but through the realities of them. You're going to be unleavened as you live a holy life in Christ. Jesus was sacrificed for you. Now you're going to keep this feast continually, not just during seven days. You stay unleavened, Christians. And that's the focus of 1 Corinthians. It's about sanctification and unity. That's like the two themes in that book. If you read 1 Corinthians thinking, this, every verse you're going to read is going to be pretty much about sanctification or unity. And, um, and so we're to be unleavened. We're to be unleavened. Jesus rids us of sin. He cleanses us out, and we're to keep that feast. That's the idea. Stay clean, walk in holiness with Christ. So that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is the third feast called the Feast of First Fruits. So let's dig into that one, the third feast. We've only got two more to go. And that's all we're doing tonight. Feast of First Fruits, and the Lord, I'm sorry, Leviticus 23, verse 9. That's where I am. I'll give you some time to get there. Okay, verse 9, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, uh, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. So he's going to wave it before the Lord. And then he tells him when. This is the time part we're interested in. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. So we have all these, these elements we've talked about before, right? We, so we have the bread, and we have the wine, and we have the animal sacrifices, and all these elements all point to Christ. We've talked about that in detail. Verse 14, and you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout all your generations in all your dwellings. That verse 14, it's when he's like, you won't eat bread until you've brought this. He's talking about the bread of the new harvest. So there was two harvest times in Israel. Uh, One of, this is why you're like, feast of first fruits, isn't that Pentecost? Well, it's both. The barley harvest was earlier. The wheat harvest was later. So this is speaking of the barley harvest. For the barley harvest that came a little earlier was the first thing that started to bear fruit. They're going to bring that and they're going to wave it before the Lord and it's the Sabbath after Passover. That's the context of Leviticus 23 and you can check a Jewish calendar that's when they observe it the Sabbath after Passover or excuse me the day after the Sabbath after Passover. That would be on a Sunday. So on a Sunday they're waving the first fruits. It's an offering of first fruits before the other first fruits offering which is at Pentecost which is kind of a Separate feast. That's kind of a bigger deal, actually. Like I said, it was barley because it ripened earlier than the other stuff. And it happens in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the timeline's like this. Passover happens, a week of unleavened bread. In the middle of that week, you have this first fruits offering. And it's going to happen on a Sunday. On the day after the Sabbath. Do you guys know what day that was? That was Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that Christ rose from the dead. So he dies at Passover, and he rises at the Feast of firstfruits. first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15.20, it says this, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus and our future bodies that we will have. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So 1 Corinthians 15, the same book that ties Jesus to the Passover, that ties the unleavened Feast of Unleavened Bread to our own being cleansed of sin and walking in holiness, it also ties Jesus to being the first fruits in his resurrection. Now, this is really interesting when you get into Jewish understanding of the resurrection. I get excited about this stuff. It's a little geeky. I'll admit it, but I think you might like it too. Okay, so one of the obstacles for the gospel going out in the early church was that the Jews expected a big mass resurrection. All of those who had died in the Lord, so to speak, in God that were going to be raised, they'd all be raised together. They didn't expect this resurrection of just the Messiah before the resurrection of everybody else. So it, they called this the general resurrection. They didn't expect a sample resurrection of this Messiah before everybody rose. That was a surprise to them. But here it is embedded in the feasts. There's a first fruit offering before there is even the day of Pentecost at the mass harvest, before there's these other events going on later. So that's where Paul, he actually is trying to debate with them and let them know, Jesus, he's the first fruit. He's the first fruit. He's the representative. He's the sample. Now, the the thing about the first fruit is they'd wave this before the Lord, and it was to say that all the rest of the harvest is now like cleansed, is acceptable to God, because you have this one sample piece that's waved before the Lord. And so... um, so the sample offering was to sanctify the rest. And this is what a Roman, Romans eleven sixteen talks about. Keep in mind these feasts now. It's cool to have these feasts in your mind because the language of the New Testament is very Jewish. When you get this in your head, it, it helps. Romans eleven sixteen it says, If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. If Jesus is holy, then so are those who are associated with Christ. If Jesus is rising, then so are those who are associated with Christ. He's the sample, he's the first fruits, he's the guarantee. So that that's the uh, the feast of first fruits. And there's more you could talk about there, um, more stuff that goes on there. But I think it's uh, pretty pretty neat to see Passover, the timing of it, right? The death of Christ, the feast of uh, first fruits, the resurrection of Christ on that same day. Jesus rises from the dead, and then the Scripture calls him the first fruits from the dead, and then we have the last feast we'll do today it's 50 days later and it's the feast of Pentecost also called Shavuot and it is in Leviticus 23 verse 15 as we just kind of keep working through that chapter it says you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering the sheaf of the wave offering that's the feast of first fruits that we just talked about yep (laughs) we're with you Mike we got every we understand everything you say in perfect clarity um So they count 50 days after the seventh Sabbath, seventh Sabbath, so seven weeks and a day, then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. And here you're about to find out something that was different about this Feast of Pentecost, about the offering given that's not like any other offering at any other time in Israel. It says, they shall be of fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven wait what with leaven this is like the one thing you don't bring right you don't know leaven no honey that could even just be a an, you know something that speeds up the leavening process like no you bring for Pentecost you bring leaven you bring loaves with leaven as first fruits to the Lord so you have the first fruits and then you have more first fruits interesting so one's the barley harvest the other one is the wheat harvest now here's something that's interesting too Side note, you know how they would get leaven for the wheat harvest, for the bread for the wheat harvest? Because they cleared it all out, right? What they would do is they would take some of the bread from the barley harvest, they would let it decay, and then it would become a little bit of leaven that they would use with the wheat. So you take some of the, this is cool to me, you take the barley harvest, representing the death and resurrection of Christ, and you add it into the wheat harvest, and it can leaven... The wheat harvest with this new leaven. Keep that in mind. Keep reading. Verse 18. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering. Remember we talked about the offerings? With their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offering. So we have sin offering, burnt offering, peace offering, grain offering. Right? And then the drink offering, we just, which we didn't get into in Leviticus 7. It's not considered one of the major ones. Verse 20 And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. So the priest, he eats like his pay is from his, his work in the tabernacle. So he eats this stuff. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout all your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your right field or reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So they would, you're like, why is this in here in the middle of the feasts? Well, it's the feast of first fruits. It's a feast that has to do with the gathering of the wheat and the gathering of the harvest. So he says, and keep in mind, when you gather your harvest, don't gather every little bit. Instead, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. So there would be, it would just be no during the time of harvest, if you're poor, you could just go into the farmer's field after he's gathered and you could just gather whatever you can get a hold of. So it's, it was like a nice, uh, like a welfare type program. So the Feast of Pentecost is also called the Feast of Harvest in another place in scripture. And again, it's 50 days after first fruits. So we have Passover, the death of Christ. We have the resurrection of Christ on first fruits. 50 days later, we have Pentecost. That's why we use the word Pentecost. It means 50 days. Just a penta, 50. It means 50 days. That's why we call it Pentecost. Shavuot is like the more Hebrew terminology for it. There's animal offerings that are brought, uh, a burn offering, that's seven-year-old uh, lambs, seven one-year-old lambs, and a bull, a sin offering, that's a male goat that's brought, and then peace offering of two male lambs. And we've covered the meaning of those offerings in a previous video uh, that we did on, in this series on the, uh, the meaning of the offerings in Leviticus. But the centerpiece and the unique thing of Pentecost is this bread, leavened bread, like, it, you're just like, wait a minute, you're, it's ruining the picture, God. Like, you're, you've set up a picture where leaven represents these bad things, and then now you're putting it in an offering, these two loaves. I think the centerpiece of the two loaves with leaven is, a, is, is possibly, here, and we're theorizing here, this is a possibility, that it's a picture of that you've got Jews and Gentiles, people who are sinners who are being brought into the kingdom of God. Um, another possibility with the leaven is that the leaven is a expanding agent, and the idea is this explosive growth that happens, and that could also be related. It's possible that both of these pictures are being meant at the same time in this in this thing. In Second Corinthians five twenty one, it says, "For our sake, He made Him who to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God." In a sense, um, the unleavened was offered for the leavened in Christ. Jesus, who is perfect and without spot and without blemish, without leaven, he was offered that we who have sin might be accepted before God. And so here we have, after the time of the first fruits, the resurrection of Christ, the unleavened, we have then those of us who are fallen in sin being acceptable before God. Now this may... be strengthened as we look in the book of Acts and we see what happened at the day of Pentecost, which most of you guys are familiar with, but let's look at it because you might find something you haven't noticed before. So in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 verses 3 through 5, it says about Jesus, um, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise for, of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So there's the death, there's the resurrection of Christ, and then 40 days he's with them, and then he ascends after 40 days, and he says to them, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. They wait 10 days. 10 days from the time Jesus ascends, until the day of Pentecost. Several really important things happen in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. For one thing, remember we mentioned these three gathering days for Israel? The first one was what? Passover. Second one is? Pentecost. They're actually already there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, first fruits, they're already in Jerusalem. But 50 days later, they're asked to come back for Pentecost. Next time they come back, we'll be uh, in the fall feasts, and we'll get to that next week. But so these are big gathering days. This means that God so ordained the feasts of Israel that the largest number of Jews would be in Jerusalem to witness the death and resurrection of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And it would be many of the same people that had been there 50 days prior. You wonder why so many people get saved in what we're about to read? I think part of it's because of what they had already been seeing. So, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they're waiting in Jerusalem, 10 days later, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Um, So it's, now, what did these look like? I don't know. I mean, because fire could represent lightning, could represent you know, yellow or red flames. It could be something that's just like that, like fire, like that just makes me think of fire, you know. Uh, Whatever it was, this thing appears upon them and it's compared to tongues and that'll be important. It's compared to tongues because tongues are analogous to languages. And this is going to get neat in case it hasn't gotten neat for you yet. Verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why are there dwelling in Jerusalem Jews from every nation? Because it's Pentecost. Because it's the day of the feast. All of your males shall appear before me for the day of Pentecost. Why? Because I want them to see this. Because the fulfillment of the day will happen when the people of Israel are gathered and they will see this. So there's people from all over. In verse 6, At the sound the multitude came together. It was loud enough that they heard it from all over and they gathered together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Like these guys, how do they know these languages? He's speaking in my language. I've traveled long and far to get here for Pentecost. How does this guy know my language? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, which would be Gentiles who had decided to take on Judaism. They believed it was true, and they, they took on Judaism. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of god so here's the elements at pentecost at the fulfillment of the feast we have the holy spirit right and god is writing his law upon their hearts right he's he's giving them the holy spirit gives us relationship with god transformation in the sanctification of the spirit scripture says it gives us the unity of the spirit it joins us together as one and it empowers us uh the the filling of the spirit empowers us um so, so he's doing all these things in our lives as we're filled with the Spirit, right? Well, they're beginning to see some of these things manifest and in a very profound way, in an uncommon way with all these languages and all these tongues. It's heard by people from all around. So the gospel goes out to all these languages and these guys are gathered for Pentecost and then what's going to happen next? Well, eventually they go back home. So God set up the Feast of Israel so that the gospel message of Christ would go out like lightning. It would be I saw the crucifixion of Jesus. I heard of his resurrection. I, I heard of his mighty works and saw the, mirac- the miracles in Acts chapter 2 at the days of Pentecost. And then I went back to my people and I told them and told them and told them. And so we see that th- this, is, this is part of the reason for the miraculous growth of Christianity in the early uh, first century. So what do we do with all this? The Passover was the sacrifice of Jesus. The unleavened bread is about the, clean, the, the, the sinlessness of Christ that he imparts to us and calls us to live out in our own lives. The Feast of first fruits is about his resurrection. And Pentecost is about the gospel going out to all people of every language. Really, Pentecost is the beginning of a whole new thing in scripture. All people of every language. And as we follow in the book of Acts, that's what we see consistently being taught about. I think that there are these two loaves of leavened bread because of this explosive growth of the body of Christ. 3,000 souls were added that very day. And because of the idea that wicked sinners are now made acceptable through Christ. Like that, that, that offering that can never be offered. You will never offer leaven with your offering. Except on the day of Pentecost, that day it's okay. In fact, I command it. Because I think he's picturing us coming just as we are, sinners who come to the, to the Lord to be offered to him. Lord, I offer you as I am. You cleanse me. You make me acceptable in your sight. I think that's the idea. Now, there's some people who say, this is Jewish tradition. I'm going to cross into tradition zone here for a second. Don't get scared. I'll come back out of it in a moment. But uh, there's Jewish tradition that at the Feast of Pentecost, it was the same day that the law was given, the Ten Commandments, at the time of Moses. And I want to illustrate for you how we can sometimes make the mistake of falling in love too much with tradition. So here's the parallels they offer. And they're they're interesting. They're exciting. But I think they're inaccurate. And I'll tell you why. Um but hey, at the uh, at the giving of the law, God gives it to them in one language and he gives it to the one people and they fail it and it's two stones that are that are brought down and he breaks them. And because of their rebellion and them creating this this golden calf, Aaron and the golden calf and all that, 3,000 souls die that day. But at Pentecost, it's different. God's not up distant on the mountain. No, the fire comes right down upon us, not hidden in a cloud, but exposed and open for all to see. It comes not in one language, but in all the languages for all the people. Not 3,000 souls die, but 3,000 souls are saved. And these are interesting parallels, aren't they? The problem is that the giving of the law was at least three months after Passover. Passover not on the day of Pentecost. So I think it's fine to say there's parallels between Pentecost and the law, but not pretend they happen on the same day because we have a rabbinic tradition from 1200 AD. That's the earliest report of it that says that it was on the day of Pentecost. The text of scripture indicates that it was at least three months later when these things happened. So it's fine to find these things and be interested in them, but I, I don't want to be um, too, uh, too drawn into tradition. I want to stick to the text of scripture. I don't want to fall pray to that leaven of the Pharisees which does creep in because you just get enamored by the traditions of the rabbis um, that can be dangerous now um, we have we have then in a sense this, this the very real sense this fulfillment of Passover of the feast of unleavened bread of the feast of first fruits and of Pentecost we have it all right there at the time of Jesus but the next three feasts of Israel there is no New Testament fulfillment for these things. So, what we tend to do is we see these next three feasts as prophetic for future things. Now, here's what's really interesting as you get into these. Um, there's a Jewish year that God gave them, right? He goes, This will be the first of the month. So, their year is supposed to start with Passover. But the civil year, they, they actually calculate their year differently. They celebrate their new year right, before, right basically at the Feast of Trumpets at, at the beginning of these next three feasts. So when we're reading through the text, we feel like it all starts with Passover. And that's how it starts for us. But for the Jewish people, it's like they have the calendar kind of backwards. They get the other three feasts before the Passover in their year. It's really this interesting dynamic, and I wonder if that itself is somehow symbolic of the fact that that the Gentiles have been received in this time of Passover and the next three feasts are about this time of revival in the land of Israel, this time when the people of Israel are coming to Christ in mass and um, there may be some connection there. In a sense, it's like they have it, they get these feasts in an opposite order in which you get them as you're just reading through the text. And I think that that might itself be somehow prophetic. What I, what I see here though is just the unity of the scripture. How many of you, how many of you have heard that the Bible is this unified whole? And that's what Jesus in the Old Testament is showing us. That this unified whole covers so many different facets of scripture. It's like you turn it this way and you see something else. You turn it that way and you see something else. And you keep turning it and you keep seeing more and more and more and more and more. It's a very rewarding, rewarding study. So uh, next time we'll pick up and we'll look at the Feast of Trumpets, um, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So um, that should be interesting. There's some controversy about that stuff. So I know you'll... Have a good time hearing about that. <laughs> so, let's pray. Um, Father, we, uh, we thank you that Jesus, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That we might be unleavened, a new, a new lump. Lord, that he rose on the day of first fruits. That that was, that was the sample of the resurrection for, for all of us. And our, our resurrection is going to be in, in Christ. And that on the day of Pentecost, the gospel goes out. And that is the, the time of acceptability, that we are in the acceptable time of the Lord, where, where anyone can turn to Christ, anyone can come to you. So the leavened bread is acceptable. And we're so grateful, Jesus. We pray that we'd be those who speak the truth of the gospel of Christ and speak it more loudly, and that people would hear it. They need it so badly. Um, let us be voices. Um, let us speak just like they did at Pentecost. Let us speak to people about the wonderful works of God that have been wrought through Jesus Christ. We, uh, we love you, Lord. And we pray for in- continued wisdom and understanding as we keep digging into uh, these feasts that we could just see what you've put there all along. In Jesus' name.